Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would smash our pride and smash our idols, for we know that pride is idolatry. We pray that you would humble us more and more and draw us to Christ Jesus more and more. Through your word, this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The church has a calendar, which we certainly enjoy using here at Trinity Presbyterian Church. The calendar is of great value in discipling and catechizing and shaping us, grounding us, reminding us of the great events of redemptive history. But the world has a calendar, too. And in the world's calendar, it is what is called Pride Month. Now, unless you've been living under a rock... You can't help but notice this. Pride Month is what? It's a celebration of all things LGBTQ+. Now, if you have chosen to live under a rock, I couldn't really blame you at this point. But uh, unless you've been living under a rock, you know this and you've, you've seen this going on all around. And if you didn't know any better, uh, you'd think that the whole world has gone gay during the month of June, because that rainbow flag, which obviously they co-opted, that symbol of the rainbow, which is God's symbol, they have taken that over and then plastered it everywhere, all over our, uh, all over our culture. You could say LGBTQ plus has become our official state religion. It's certainly the cultural religion. I think you can even make an argument it is the official established state religion in our nation. Sports teams, corporations, the federal government, including several branches of the military, drape themselves in the rainbow flag this time of year. There are often consequences for people who will not go along with this secular liturgy. And yet we must not go along with this secular liturgy. There are good reasons to resist as Christians. We must resist. In the 1930s, a scholar by the name of J.D. Unwin published a book called Sex and Culture. And this lengthy book studied numerous cultures and civilizations over the course of history. And he found that when societies depart from monogamous marriage between a man and a woman and become sexually permissive, those societies burn out and collapse within about three generations. Unwin was not a Christian. He was a sociologist. But this is what the data showed him. He demonstrates in his book that nations most often collapse not for economic reasons, but for moral reasons. When cultures become sexually promiscuous, they lose their confidence, their families weaken, their creativity and their will to defend themselves declines. It's as if entropy sets in and the culture loses its energy and vitality. Sexual corruption rots the whole society. Unwin studied 86 different civilizations and found this to be consistently the case when sexual morality declines, so do productivity and prosperity. It is the end of the line for a civilization. Now, you can figure out what that means for modern day America. We're already well within Unwin's three generation window. I find Unwin's analysis very interesting, and in part I find it really interesting because it has some things in common with the Apostle Paul's analysis of human societies and social degeneration in Romans chapter 1. But Unwin also misses some key features that Paul includes. Paul's analysis is much broader, much deeper. 
Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, explain cultural and social degeneration. I think you could see Paul's words here. You could read this passage basically as a commentary on our nation today. It's like Paul is giving a theological interpretation of current events. We're seeing Romans 1 play out before our very eyes in real time. We're living in Romans 1. What I want to do this morning is help you connect some dots so you can understand what Pride Month and the whole LGBTQ plus movement really means. And not only that, but how we as Christians should deal with it, how we should live and act in an idolatrous culture like ours. The reality is we really do live in a modern day Sodom. And if that's the case, if we're living in Sodom, we should be like Lot. You remember Lot from the book of Genesis? We only read a little snippet of his story from Genesis this morning. But Lot was a righteous man living in Sodom, and he lived in Sodom right up to the moment when it was destroyed, and God saved him out of the city. Second Peter chapter 2 tells us that Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day in Sodom. And so I want to ask you, are you like Lot? When you see Pride Month going on all around you, are you tormented in your soul by it? You should be. I think far too many Christians today have lost their ability to be morally disgusted at that which is morally disgusting. Lot was tormented in the soul by what he saw and heard. We should be as well. Now, you can make the case, actually, that the first recorded pride march took place in front of Lot's house in Genesis 18, where the LGBTQ plus folks of Sodom gathered at Lot's house and demanded that he give them these two strangers who had come to stay with him, these two men that Lot is showing hospitality to. Ultimately, that doesn't happen. I won't say that Lot handled the situation perfectly. But because of the perversity of those men in the city, judgment falls on Sodom. Lot, again, he did not handle the situation perfectly, but he was a righteous man and he is spared while the city is destroyed with fire from heaven. Wrath from heaven falls on Sodom. Lot escapes. The apostle Jude describes what happened in Sodom this way. This is Jude 7. Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires and became an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The prophet Ezekiel describes it this way in chapter 16. This was the guilt of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. This was the guilt of Sodom. She and her daughters had pride excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty or prideful and did abominations. And so God says, I removed them. Did you catch that in Ezekiel's description? This was Sodom's sin. Pride, especially pride that comes from prosperity and ease and pride that leads to abominations, which is Ezekiel's term for you could say sexual perversity, sexual sin of various sorts. So think about what we have in Scripture. Jude focuses on Sodom's sexual immorality. Ezekiel especially focuses on Sodom's pride. What do we have in America today? We have Pride Month celebrating sexual immorality. 
It's like we're just begging for the fire to fall from heaven upon us, for the wrath from heaven to be revealed against us. But Paul in Romans 1 goes even further in his analysis. Romans 1 has been called a clobber passage by people, a passage that gets trotted out by Christians who want to clobber gays. Uh, that, that, that's how this is sometimes viewed. And so it's kind of downplayed. Well, that's just one of those clobber passages. It's not really fair to use it that way. I would say it's not really fair to call this a clobber passage that Christians just use against gays. Because that's not really what's happening in this passage. In the wider section of Romans, in chapters 1 through 3, what is Paul doing? Paul is clobbering the whole human race. He's clobbering everybody. Homosexuality is not the only sin in view. In fact, the whole thrust of these opening chapters of Romans is to show that the whole human race, Jew and Gentile, we could say straight and gay, the whole human race is locked up under the power of sin. And as Paul goes on to show in the rest of the letter, the only way to escape sin and the wrath that it deserves is through Jesus. It's through repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus as Savior. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are united to him by faith. And so in these opening chapters of Romans, Paul is dead set against any kind of self-righteousness or smugness. Paul shows that we are all sinners in need of salvation, and that salvation is only found in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But still there is a reason why homosexuality is brought up in Romans chapter 1. And we need to understand it because it sheds a great deal of light on what's happening in our culture and what we should do about it. So what does Paul say here? Well, verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That recalls the story of Sodom, where the fire of God, the fiery wrath of God was revealed from heaven. This wrath is just and it is deserved. It falls on the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's a key phrase in this passage. They suppress the truth. What truth do they suppress? Well, verse 19 tells us God has plainly revealed himself to all men in the things he has made. In the way that God made the world and governs the world, he is constantly revealing himself to everyone. The whole creation has the creator's fingerprints all over it. Every fact, every item, everything in the creation points to its creator and reveals its creator. Of course, Paul here is echoing David in Psalm 19. Creation is revelatory of its creator. There's no escaping this revelation of God in creation. So verse 20 goes on to tell us that God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature are made visible in the creation. Paul is saying the creation portrays invisible realities in visible ways. The creation makes the invisible visible. This revelation, Paul tells us, is objectively clear. He says it is clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And thus, men who do not thank and glorify God are without excuse. All men, without exception are obligated to thank God and to glorify him as God. And so when men refuse to do so, they are without 
excuse. Men know the true God inescapably because he has revealed himself. There's no place man can run and hide and get away from God's revelation. But because men refuse to acknowledge the God they know, they are judged justly by God. This is Paul's point then, because man is surrounded by God's revelation, and in fact man himself is a revelation of God, men have no excuse for their failure to honor God as God. Man is obligated to thank God, to glorify God, and yet man refuses to do so. All men know God inescapably. The Apostle Paul would tell us there are no atheists, only liars. Atheists are lying. They're lying to themselves, and then they're lying to everybody else. They know in their heart of hearts, they know there is a God. They're suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. And it's not just that men know there is a divine being, some kind of higher power. They know the true God, the triune God, the creator God, the only God that exists. They are in contact with him and they're also in rebellion against him. Paul goes on then to show us that this rebellion against God, this suppression of the truth has consequences. And it has consequences for man's mind and man's body. It has consequences for individuals and for whole societies. Verse 21 tells us about the the intellectual consequences of this rebellion. Men have no excuse for failing to honor God, but they instead create foolish rationalizations for honoring false gods. They develop a theology of idolatry, as it were, to justify their worship of that which is not God. Because of sin, they don't glorify and thank the true and living God as they should. And so Paul says they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. There you have in those phrases, they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. The whole history of non-Christian philosophy can be summed up by those words in a nutshell. Futile, foolish thinking that produces far more darkness than light. That's the whole history of non-Christian thought, of non-Christian philosophy. Then in verses 23 to 28, Paul will mention Three exchanges men make and three handing overs that God does. And you can see pretty easily how this is structured. Three exchanges men make and three handing overs that God does. And all of this starts with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. That's really what's in the background here. The original sin of man, man's fall into sin. Paul is showing us the outworking of the fall of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. What did happen in Genesis 3? Well, one way to look at the fall in Genesis 3 is that the entire created order was turned upside down by sin. As God designed it in the beginning, the man and the woman would live in a loving union of marriage. The man would rule his wife and would be her teacher in the garden sanctuary and he would feed her from the tree of life. And together they would rule the world, they would rule the lower creation as king and queen. That's God's original design. The the man and the woman under God, serving him, thanking and glorifying him. The man ruling over the woman in marriage. And then together, the man and the woman ruling over the entire lower creation. But what happens in Genesis chapter 3? The serpent comes to rule over the man and the woman. The woman rules over the man and gives him food from the forbidden tree. And all of them together rebel against God and rebel against serving God. 
In Genesis 3, that whole created order is inverted. Those patterns that God established in the creation, that that order, that hierarchy God established in creation is turned upside down. And Romans chapter 1 shows us how that pattern of inverting the created order continues to happen down through history. It continues to reverberate down through history. Adam and Eve exchanged the worship of God for the worship of the creature. Adam and Eve exchanged the truth of God for the serpent's satanic lies. Adam and Eve exchanged their marital responsibilities towards one another for sexual autonomy and sexual chaos. As Adam failed to be a man and his wife failed to be a woman and they turned away from and against each other. These exchanges are still happening. They happen in cultures and in civilizations. You can think of them this way. There's a liturgical exchange, God for idols. There's a theological exchange, truth for for lies. And finally, there is a sexual exchange, marriage for sexual chaos. So this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. It also goes back to Psalm 106. Psalm 106 uses this language of exchange to talk about idolatry. And Paul has picked up on that and showed us how it gets worked out. Now, These exchanges prove a couple of important points. First, these exchanges prove that every culture is religious. You've heard me make this argument before, but Romans 1 proves it. It's not whether, but which. It's not whether a society will have a God, but which God will it be? Every society is a theocracy. Every society has its God. The question is just, which God does it serve? What Romans 1 shows us is that when people stop worshiping the true God, they don't start, they don't stop worshiping. Okay, when people stop worshiping the true God, they don't stop worshiping altogether. Rather, they start worshiping a creature. Some aspect of the creation gets worshiped instead. Man is a worshiping being. He is a liturgical creature. He is intrinsically and inherently and inescapably liturgical and religious. He's got to worship somebody. He's got to worship something that's inescapable. This means there is no neutrality. No society is ever religiously neutral. That is so important for us to understand because we are sold this lie that we live in a secular society, that we have a secular government that is religiously neutral, that we have a neutral public square. But that is obviously false. It's just an outright lie. In fact, what it is is a very devious way to hide our idolatry. Because, see, what's really happening is progressivism or wokeness or LGBTQ+, whatever you want to call it, this progressive movement functions as an established religion in our nation. You know, people might think of, of, of these things, progressivism or wokeness or LGBTQ, as political ideologies, and that's why they can have sway in the public square. But again, that's a way of disguising their inherent idolatry. Their inherently religious nature so that they can be snuck into public life without getting accused of mixing religion and politics. See, that's how Christians have been purged from the public square is we're told it's got to be secular. It's got to be religiously neutral. And so you Christians can't bring your convictions into the public square because they're religious. But LGBTQ plus convictions, progressive convictions are just as religious as Christian convictions. Progressivism dominates today. It completely crushes its competitors because it is a religion cleverly camouflaged as a non-religious movement. 
And so it can get traction in places where the Christian faith is dismissed out of hand right now. We need to understand this is what's going on. The myth of neutrality allows the idol of progressivism to run rampant and to destroy our society from within. And so think about this. Government agencies will use the rainbow flag, the symbol of the LGBTQ plus movement. They'll use the rainbow flag in places they would never use, say, the cross or some other Christian symbol. You can bathe the White House in the colors of the rainbow flag, but you could never put a cross out in the front of the White House lawn. Why is that? Because the rainbow flag is supposedly secular and the cross is religious. Now, this whole thing is a scam. It's a lie, but we need to understand this is the play that's being run on us. And it's being run because it's been run successfully against Christians again and again and again. That's what an opponent does. They run a play until you show you can stop it. Well, so far, Christians haven't shown we can stop it. So they keep running this play of the the myth of neutrality. But Romans 1 explodes the myth of a religiously neutral society. There is no such thing. Every society is religious. Every society has a God. Every society has some concept of an ultimate good and works to embody that concept of the good and to advance it. And its institutions bow before that concept of the good. Neutrality is impossible. Every society has a religion, whether it is called that or not. And again, I think it's very obvious. Our established Church, if you will, our established religion today is progressivism. Our state religion is LBGTQ+. And if you don't believe me, just criticize it in public space. Criticize the LGBTQ plus movement and see what happens. You will be treated like a heretic or blasphemer of old. That's what will happen. And that brings me to the other point here. For Paul... This series of exchanges culminates with with homosexuality. The series of exchanges, they're falling like dominoes. This series of exchanges culminates with homosexuality. It culminates with total sexual confusion and sexual chaos. Because homosexuality here really, you could say, stands in for the whole LGBTQ plus package. It stands for sexual confusion, sexual chaos, sexual rebellion. But this is really the important thing to see with this series of exchanges. For Paul, sexual confusion is the result of idolatry. Sexual confusion flows out of idolatry. Sometimes you will hear gay people say something like this. God made me this way. No. God did not make you this way. God does not make people gay. Idols make people gay. False gods make people gay. Idolatry makes people gay. Romans 1 is very clear about that. This sexual confusion stems from idolatry. Because they have become idolaters, men exchange the natural use of the woman, which is faithful and fruitful marriage, going back to Genesis 1 and 2. They exchange the natural use of the woman for the unnatural use of one another. And Paul says they commit unnatural and shameful acts, abominable acts, sodomite acts. And I don't hesitate to use the word sodomy here uh, because that recalls the biblical story, which I think is helpful. Some people don't like that term sodomy, but I think it's helpful. G.K. Chesterton once said nine times out of ten, the coarse word is the word that condemns an evil and the refined word is the word that excuses it. We should not hesitate to use sodomite or sodomy to describe what's happening because that's a biblical way of getting at what it is. 
Likewise, Paul says it's not just the men who engage in these shameful, unnatural acts. He says the women exchange the natural use of sex for the unnatural. Now, Paul uses that word nature. He talks about what's natural and what's unnatural. What does that mean? Nature here refers not to a social construct. In fact, that's really obvious because homosexual activity was perfectly acceptable in Greco-Roman civilization. It was not shameful at all. In fact, it was expected to be part of your very diverse and free sex life in those days. In this context in Romans 1, nature refers to the creation. Specifically, you could say, to the creator's original design. The man and the woman were made for one another. They were made for loving union with each other. And the very facts of our anatomy bear that out, that we were made for one another. One clue to this, I think, is found in verse 26, where Paul speaks of their women. Verse 26 says their women. Verse 27 just says the men. Why this asymmetry? Why is the possessive pronoun used for the women? Whose women are they? When he says their women, who, who, who do these women belong to? Well, they belong to the men who are responsible to love them, to protect them, to care for them, to provide for them. It's their women who are engaging in these unnatural, shameful acts. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, you will find that God built into the nature of things the headship of the man over his wife. So the man is responsible for her. He is to protect her and to provide for her. He is to take responsibility for her. What Paul is showing us here with this language, the men, their women, as the men give themselves over to shameful acts, they lead their women to do the same. When men lose their masculinity through degrading practices, they are no longer capable of loving and protecting their women as they should. They are like Adam in the garden, advocating. And so what do the women do? The women fall into unnatural acts as well. He denies his masculinity, and so she loses her femininity. And what God had designed, again, that design is subverted. Again, the original creation design is inverted. It's subverted by these exchanges. Now, note the pattern here. Note what the flow is in Romans 1. We started with idolatry and we ended with homosexuality. Homosexuality is the outworking of idolatry in a culture. Think of it in terms of an analogy. This this may be the best way to think about it. Sexual fidelity between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage was designed by God to symbolize the proper relationship of God with his people. We know this, right? The union of a man and a woman, the loving sexual union of a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage is designed to symbolize the proper relationship between Christ and the church. That's what sexual fidelity symbolizes. The gospel. Thus, sexual infidelity, that is, perverse forms of sex, symbolize idolatry. A false god falsely related to the creation. Sexual immorality symbolizes idolatry the same way that marital sex symbolizes the gospel. Sex always has meaning. It always symbolizes something. That's what's happening. Or another way to get at this, you become like what you worship. And so if a society worships a false god, that whole society comes to be rooted in falsehood. Comes to be rooted in lies. That's our society today. Our whole society is built on a foundation of lies. Because we have exchanged God's truth for a lie, we have become fools. 
And so we say there is no creator, no divine design, no script for sexuality, no such thing as a, as a permanent fixed definition of marriage, no such thing as a man or a woman or a family. These are all social constructs. We say there's no such thing as a, as a life in the womb. It's expendable. It can be killed for the sake of convenience if we desire it. We say there's no such thing as God's law or sin or divine wrath. It is lies all the way down today. The whole way our society looks at reality, the Overton window that determines what's plausible, what kind of views are acceptable in polite society, it is all determined by these lies. It is lies, lies, lies all the way down. Now, there are these three exchanges. There are also three handing overs. Uh, Augustine summarized uh, this by saying God punishes sin with sin. God punishes sinners by giving them over to their sin. The worst thing God can do for a sinner is to give a sinner what he wants. And that's what's happening here with these handing overs. Verse 24, when people become idolaters, God gives them up. He gives them over, he hands them over to uncleanness, to the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies. We've seen how sin wrecks the mind, it darkens the mind, so our thinking becomes futile. Well, it also leads to the dishonoring of the body. God hands them over to the outworking of their idolatry. It's as if God says, if you kick me out of society, fine. I'll go, but madness will follow. When God gets kicked out of society, what do you think is going to fill that void? All kinds of madness and chaos and self-destruction. When God gives idolaters what they want, they end up harming themselves. They dishonor God, and so they dishonor their own bodies. They give up on the divine glory, and so they lose their own glorious creatures made in His image. They do things to destroy themselves, to destroy their bodies, like giving themselves over to drug addiction or they mutilate their genitals with transgender surgery or they engage in shameful sexual practices. What is Paul saying? He's saying idolatry is suicidal. He's saying all those who hate God love death. Verse 27 says those who practice homosexuality receive in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. What does it mean that they receive in themselves the due penalty for their perversion? Well, one thing it means is that homosexuality destroys those who practice it mentally, emotionally, spiritually, bodily. The whole LGBTQ plus community is racked with mental and emotional issues, and it's easy to find the data on that. And I think this mental illness, these emotional illnesses really stem from shame over their way of life. It's not because society doesn't approve. We'll be told that, and it's our fault that they're suffering these mental and emotional illnesses. Don't allow yourself to be blackmailed or gaslighted in that way. It's not your fault. It stems from the shameful nature of the acts themselves. But there are also physical issues. Now, I can tell you, when I was in graduate school 25 years ago, you could still find this information. You could go to a public library or a university library, and you could find this information. You can't now. It's a whole lot harder to find this information because it has been suppressed. But the gay lifestyle causes so many health issues for men. On average, it decreases life expectancy by 20 years. That is according to the National Institute of Health. So it is far worse for you 
than, say, smoking two or three packs a day. That would probably trim some years off your life, too, but not two decades. And think about how much effort our society, how much energy we've put into suppressing smoking because it's bad for people's health. This is far worse, and yet we celebrate it. Homosexuality leads to a culture of death. Natural sex, as God designed it, is life-giving. Unnatural sex is death-dealing. Natural relations bring life. Unnatural relations bring death. And so you can say, quite literally, idolatry produces a culture of death. It destroys lives and families and children and whole nations. Verse 26, we have another handing over. God gave them over. God handed them over to vile passions. He hands them over to same-sex attraction or other perverse desires. In context here, what is this vile passion? It is same-sex Attraction. That's the cleaned up way of putting it. Same sex attraction. Now, this is really important because there are people in the church today who have tried to sanitize same sex attraction. And they'll say it's not a sin and it's not bad so long as you don't act on it. If you're familiar with the revoice movement, this is this is one of the key things that they will teach. The truth is. That while acting on same-sex desires would be much worse, the desire itself is evil. Now, I will tell you, a Christian can struggle with this desire just like a Christian can struggle with any other sin. There are Christians who their great struggle in life is with same-sex attraction, with this vile passion. But we have to call it what it is, which is sin. It is a vile passion to be sexually attracted to someone of the same sex. To paraphrase Jesus, whoever sexually desires someone of the same sex has already sodomized him in his heart. Just as Jesus talks about heart adultery, we could talk about heart sodomy. A desire for something intrinsically evil is evil. It is evil to desire what is evil. And speaking of vile passion... Do you ever wonder what the plus in LGBTQ plus stands for? I mean, this is open-ended. This is a rolling revolution. Where does it go next? What's that plus stand for? Is it polygamy? Is it bestiality? Is it incest? Is it pedophilia? Probably all the above in some form or fashion. But you should be especially concerned with how interested progressives are in children and marketing this kind of sexualization to children. Normalizing pedophilia would be a very logical next step. I'm not saying I know for sure it will be taken, but it would be a very logical next step. And when progressives start saying things like, there's no such thing as other people's children, basically they're saying, your children belong to us, you ought to get really, really suspicious. Those are the kinds of things that are being said. And then the third handing over, verse 28, because they rejected knowledge of God, They really reject all knowledge. You cannot have truth without the source of truth. You cannot have wisdom when you reject the one who is wisdom. So God hands them over to the futility of their thinking. To to, to lose God is to lose touch with reality. G.K. Chastron said that when men cease to be theological, they cease being logical. You can't have logic without God. You can't have rules of reason without a God who created our our, our rationality, our minds. 
And so people's minds have become darkened and debased. In our day, it's very hard to have a rational discussion with someone about these things out in the culture. Have you noticed that? It's like people's minds have just turned to mush. And they can't reason clearly or think clearly about any of these things. And they, 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 they embrace all kinds of things that are obviously contradictory and don't make any sense. And are contrary to the most basic facts of biology and whatnot. Paul here is not saying that idolaters have low IQs. What he's saying is no matter how intelligent they are, no matter how many PhDs they have, they will misuse and abuse their reasoning just like they misuse and abuse their bodies. And again, we're seeing all of this play out in utterly ridiculous ways today. We've got Supreme Court justices who admit openly they don't know what a woman is. Well, you don't know what a woman is. You certainly can't know what women's rights are. Correct? Wouldn't that follow? When people no longer know which bathroom to use, you can be sure God has handed them over to a debased mind. What does idolatry do? Idolatry makes smart people become utter fools. Their minds are warped even as their bodies. Now, verses 29 to 32 go on to list a bunch of other sins that manifest themselves in idolatrous cultures. Sins travel in packs. Idolatry here is the mother's sin. These are her children. Things that Paul lists include covetous, malice, envy, strife, deceit, gossip, disobedience to parents, the refusal to forgive or to show mercy. Paul gives a very comprehensive list of the other kinds of sins that flow out of idolatry. And you could say that destroy or wreck a civilization. Notice just a couple of things here. Verse 32 says, those who do these things know the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such deserve death. They know what they're doing makes them worthy of death. In some cases, this might be a reference to the death penalty, to capital punishment. Some of the things in Paul's list are not only sins, but they were crimes according to the Torah. But even when that's not the case, certainly it means they know in their heart of hearts that because of these sins, they deserve the wrath of God revealed from heaven, just like Sodom. They know they deserve the judgment of God. They know they deserve eternal damnation in hell because of these sins. Because they know God, they know they deserve his wrath, even if they suppress that truth and seek to justify themselves. But also note, and this is really important, at the end of verse 32, they not only do these things, they approve of them. They approve of them. And this is really what Pride Month is all about. It is demanding that all of us as a society, that we not even just merely tolerate these deviant sexualities. What is being demanded of us is that we approve of them, that we celebrate their sexual perversity. That's really what Pride Month is about, demanding your approval and my approval of what they do. It is not enough for the LGBTQ plus movement to live and let live. No, it is totalizing. This is why I say it's a god. It's an established religion. It requires everyone to join in and approve. You've got to burn your little pinch of incense to the rainbow flag if you want to stay in good standing in our society today. Remember, homosexuality only began to be decriminalized in the U.S. in the 1970s. And so that means we have gone from homosexual practice being a crime to being celebrated in about 50 years' time. That's how quickly this has happened. In 1975, the comedian Bob Hope 
Okay, you older folks will remember Bob Hope. In 1975, the comedian Bob Hope went to Las Vegas, I think is actually where he was, to do a comedy show. And he opened his comedy routine by saying, I've just flown in from California where they have made homosexuality legal. I thought I should get out before they made it mandatory. Okay. Now, that was really funny in 1975. Okay. Maybe it's kind of funny today, but not quite so much. I mean, obviously, homosexuality isn't mandatory in California. But I'll tell you what is mandatory. Approving of it. Celebrating it is mandatory. And you'll put your job and your social standing at risk if you will not approve and celebrate it. They are demanding your approval. And I think Bob Hope, even in 1975, had a sense that something coercive might follow from this, this change in law. They want to coerce you into approving of their actions and their agenda. And, of course, that is the very thing we must not do is give approval. Well, let me close here with a couple things that I think we need to be focused on as a church. Romans 1, I think, shows us that it is useless to deal with Pride Month or with the LGBTQ plus movement simply as a culture war issue. This is how it gets processed and looked at by politicians and pundits and even a lot of conservative Christians. But you can't look at it just as a culture war issue. The mosquito that spreads the LGBTQ virus is idolatry. LGBTQ is just the outworking of idolatry. It flows from idolatry. It's a form of idolatry. It's punishment for idolatry. As idolatry works itself out to consistency, it is expressed more and more in terms of sexual confusion. That means to fix the sexual confusion, you've got to address the idolatry. That is the underlying issue. So then the question is, how do we deal with idolatry? Well, the answer to idolatry is found in the rest of Romans. The whole book of Romans then is really written to deal with the the problem Paul sets up in the first three chapters of sin and idolatry. The answer is the gospel and only the gospel. See, you cannot win the so-called culture war by fighting in the culture war. The culture war is inevitable, it's inescapable, we're all combatants in it, whether we want to be or not, whether we like it or not, that's just the way it is. But we won't win the culture war by fighting the culture war. And it's so important to understand that. Even if we got laws passed against homosexuality, say like Uganda just did, or like we used to have on the books, like we're on the books for for, for centuries in the whole Western world, even if we got laws against homosexuality passed, it would not change things the way they need to be changed. Even if boycotts against Bud Light and Target and other corporations totally succeeded, that still would not fix the issue. If all we do is oppose LGBTQ plus activism with our own brand of active activism, All we are doing is lopping off the part of the weed that is above ground. And if you've ever been a gardener and you know, if you just pull off the top, the weed part that's above ground, what's going to happen? The weed's going to grow right back. You have not uprooted it yet. To uproot the weeds, we've got to attack the real source, which is idolatry. Idolatry is the root. Again, you can't vote your way out of idolatry. There's only one man who can solve this. And his name isn't Donald Trump. His name's not even Ron DeSantis. His name is Jesus Christ. 
He's the only one that can solve it. The church's goal, our mission, is to eradicate the world of idolatry. That's what the Great Commission really means. To eradicate the world of pride. Because pride is idolatry. And ultimately, only Jesus can do that. To win the culture war, you really have to win the liturgical war. You have to win the spiritual war behind the culture war. And I'll tell you, we can win that war. I don't doubt the truth behind Unwin's thesis. If you read his research, it's well, it's pretty well researched. And it is proven to be the case in many, many societies in history. And I will tell you this, that if the march of pride continues, no, it won't be the end of history, but it will be the end of our history. Because a society dominated by LGBTQ plus is a society with no future. It's a society with an expiration date. But the Apostle Paul would tell us it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus is in the business of redeeming sinners. Jesus is in the business of changing nations and reversing the course of things. So there can be a re-exchange. So that in these exchanges, what we gave up, we can reverse those exchanges and get it all back. And you see this in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul lists a, a, a number of categories of people who will not enter the kingdom of God because of the sins they practice as a way of life, because of their wickedness. And the list includes the effeminate, so those who do not live out their God-given sex. It includes homosexuals. But then he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he says to the Corinthian Christians, such were some of you. Some of you were trapped in these very sins that would have excluded you from inheriting the kingdom of God. And what happened? Jesus transformed you. He gave you a new identity, a new pattern of life. Jesus forgave you and washed you and made you clean. And if Jesus did it for Corinthians, he can do it for Americans. There's no question. Idolatry can be defeated. We already sang two hymns this morning about trampling Satan and the idols under our feet. Jesus can do that for us. But we need to understand this only happens as we as God's people show care and compassion and love to our fellow sinners. And yes, I say fellow sinners for a reason. We have to speak truth in place of culture's lies. We have to worship the true God when the culture is running after idols. And we've got to practice and model life as it really ought to be lived in our own marriages and in our families. And so we can then say to the LGBTQ plus person something like this. This would be our message to them. Something like this. You are living a lie. You are worshiping a false God. But it doesn't have to be this way. The God who made you loves you and he wants to be united to you through his son for all eternity. Indeed, he sent his son into the world and gave his son to suffer and die on the cross for sinners like you and like me. And so come to him, come to this Jesus for forgiveness. Come to him and get a new identity and new strength and new direction, a new mission in life. Come to him and be made a new creation so you can begin to live as God designed you to live. And no, you're not alone in this. There's a church full of redeemed sinners ready to welcome you into fellowship. And yes, it will be hard, but know that the pain and the struggle will be worth it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.
Let us continue our worship by giving of our tithes and offerings.